0: Hello and welcome to this week's Ulster Rugby Roundup, I'm Gareth Hanna and with me as always are Jonathan Bradley, hi how's it going, and Adam McKendrick, hey guys, of course this week what else is there to discuss but Ulster's Euro exit and Stephen Donald's collapsed move? sorry we're recording the podcast, yeah sorry guys, Uh tell if you just heard the news, less kisses left Ulster, oh for goodness sake This week's Time Travelling Ulster Rugby Roundup I'm Gareth Hanna and with me as always are Jonathan Bradley Hello again And Adam McCandry. Hey guys It's a bit of a take two for us this week We're all recorded and ready to go on Wednesday morning But then a certain Mr. Kiss gazumped us all um, so prepare for a bit of a mesh mash of uh, this brand new Thursday edition the After Kiss edition from Belfast Telegraph, Tosh, and yesterday's BK recording. So Les, then, well, first of all, I just sort of wanted to preface all this um, with the more human side of it. I mean. Uh, You guys have dealt with Les for a lot longer and more closely than I have, but even from my brief experiences it seems like he's a very genuinely nice guy who had a true passion to succeed for Ulster. So um, just to acknowledge the human side and to say a very nice man has lost his job and I think I speak for all of us and hopefully most of the Ulster supporters when I say that we wish Les all the very best for the future. But yesterday's news then, while um, being an absolute pain in the hole for our
1: podcast, wasn't entirely surprising, was it? No, I mean, this has been something that's been rumbling on since essentially the start of November now. With the back and forth between uh, the practicalities of the different stakeholders involved in the decision, primarily Ulster, Les and the i r f u so it's been it's been a very fluid situation over the last couple of months and at various points over it, I think we've all been told that he'll be gone after this game or he'll be leaving after this game and just in the way that I suppose the timeline of will have went will be that early um slump in the season with la Rochelle leinster um Kings. Treviso-Dragons, a five-game run of really unconvincing performances, um, really started this in motion with the idea that uh, perhaps all parties would be best served if they went their separate ways. Uh, There's been some highs and lows since then. The Harlequins win probably made people have a little bit of a rethink. La Rochelle as well, but then in the middle of that you have what's as disastrous an interpro series as anyone can really care to remember where the team didn't look right mentally for what should be games that you're always right mentally for mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously a terrible sign and then the real sort of death knell I suppose the uh, the wasp performance which kicks things back into gear again I mean from what we understand that really was the uh, the end of the line and it just took a while to sort things out like uh, compensation and the like with the IRFU so that's where we got to the position where the last two days were spent Negotiating with Dublin um, Primarily negotiating A compensation package um, Culminating then With the uh, The announcement Last night At about Half five I think
0: mm-hmm. Adam I had the The question yesterday That we discussed at length And all Had to be binned um, <laughs> That had Les' position Become untenable And had it? Yeah Well I think him getting
2: uh, Him getting the heap <laughs> hoser I yeah. suggest Yes it was yeah. well,
0: then, But in your opinion then.
2: Yeah you boil it all down and you just look at those Ulster performances and they weren't anywhere near the level they need to be starting with the defence which Les was supposed to be an expert at had just fallen to absolute pieces You know, Ulster are well I suppose they're still on track for one of their worst defensive performances uh, over the course of a season ever and that just speaks volumes about how far things have fallen but Just across the board johnny mentioned all those games there and we'll go back through all of them again but you know ulster just weren't performing to the standard that we're used to there didn't seem to be any signs of revival anytime one game went well the next game immediately fell apart you saw lara shell to wasps you saw it second half of Munster to leinster there was just never any consistency there and that was the big problem les wasn't getting those results on a consistent basis if he had maybe strung a few performances together at at the right time, maybe he would have gotten a longer stay of execution. If he would gotten into the quarterfinals of Europe, you wonder if he maybe would have uh, managed to hold on to his job a bit longer, but not getting into the last eight in the Champions Cup really was just the killer. You know, they were in such a good position, and then to put in such a, a terrible performance in Wasp's there was just no way you could justify keeping him on for much longer. Maybe keep him to the end of the season, but I, I absolutely don't blame them for uh,
0: cutting him now and uh, seeing what they can do for the rest of the season. Unquestionably, then, that that was performance was the, the tipping point, but you sort of you sort of have to cast your mind then over to the players now. Um, I mean, how, how do you feel if you're a player in, in that situation? There must be... I mean, I don't know. None of us have ever been in that situation, but... You've just put in a performance, you're feeling bad enough, and then in the end it gets your uh, director rugby the sack, effectively. I resigned. Think, uh, he resigned. He resign.
1: mutually, mutually agreed to okay. part ways. Um, I think that any time somebody loses their job and you have a degree of responsibility involved in it, then you have to look at yourself and how the situation arose. I mean, I think to examine the factors at play in... Les Kiss as of today not no longer being Ulster director, but you have to look at an awful lot of various different things. Um, from what we understand of it, Ulster were the first to decide that this probably wasn't working, and that came when the season started to go into a bit of a tailspin um, in the winter. And then there was an awful so lot are, of
0: are we talking the enterprise here when the realization. Well, with, uh, I with Ulster? like.
1: I would imagine before the Interpro, so you have that, basically the run of three games undefeated, which was the least convincing run of three undefeated yeah. games in the history of rugby, where you scrape past the Kings, who prior to that day didn't have a point. You need a late, 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 late try to beat um, Treviso. You throw away a big lead of the Dragons and then end up having to rescue a draw. So you're looking at those games, and that, for me, was when... Obviously in the newspaper as well we started um, writing a lot more analysis of where Ulster were going wrong because to that to that point up until mid October when they played La Rochelle and Leinster, obviously two very good teams, things weren't going poorly per se. Like um the Zervo result at that stage of the season could have been seen as an outlier. They beat Scarlets, they beat was they beat connaught and Things seemed to be seemed to be while not being particularly convincing not tearing up trees or anything there was a point when it looked like they were steadily improving on the fare that they put out towards the end of last season
2: even after La Rochelle sorry just to ju- even after La Rochelle wasn 't looking too bad like the result in the end was poor, but Ulster went toe to toe with them for fifty minutes and then things just unraveled, but that wasn't at the time considered to be a awful result no. it, was, it was definitely after La Rochelle where things just took an immediate nosedive
1: well, it was, La Rochelle is the kind of thing that could have happened because the game unravelled on them in the last 30 minutes and while not excusing that or brushing it under the carpet or anything at that time La Rochelle were the form team in Europe but it's after that that you started to look at a team that wasn't right it's after that that we started to see the analysis pieces of just how many tries Ulster were conceding when they were shipping five to the Dragons was a five to King's as well? And that for me is when this process really started in terms of people within Ulster thinking that change was required. I think it probably took a lot longer for the other people involved in the decision, because as we say, three parties involved, to think that that was the case. But just in terms of I suppose looking at where this has all gone wrong and to bring it back to Gareth's question about the players the performances from the players haven't been good enough and that's contributed to somebody losing their job so obviously it's not going to be a particularly pleasant camp over the next couple of weeks. Les had a role in his own downfall as well obviously that goes without saying but in terms of the games coming up for the next eight weeks over the rest of the season it's going to be very tough just with Europe already gone and looking like you're pretty firmly ensconced in that third place, you're not going to catch Leicester and Scarlett. It's going to be tough to see a particularly positive outcome over the next eight games, I think.
2: I have a lot of sympathy for Les,
1: because
2: as much as I feel that he should have gone, and I think it's the right decision that he's gone, he didn't have the squad to work with, and he had so many pressures coming onto him that he was never going to live up to them, you know. I've talked a lot about how I think Ulster should be aiming for silverware and the difference between goals and aims and we've been through this. But (laughs) the pressure from within Ulster is definitely to be competitive every single year. And Les, I don't think, had the squad to do that. There's not enough depth. And whenever you lose people like uh, Marcel Katzia and Jared Payne for pretty much all of the season, it it significantly weakens you. So he has not been let down but he, he has faced a lot of struggles as director of rugby as you said he's contributed a lot to his own downfall and he, he should go for that but he has had a lot of things working against him that he hasn't been able to uh, work around so there there is a degree of sympathy in Les losing his job it's, it's a tough gig being head at Ulster because until someone comes in and sorts out the depth of the squad and the mentality within that squad, they're not going to be competitive, but the the aims are always going to be the same from the top brass.
1: But that's if you uh that's if you take it that the season's been a disappointment in the sense that the two targets set were a home semi-final in sorry, a home quarterfinal in the Pro 14 and to get out of your pool in Europe. It's been a disappointment in that regard, and you can say that Les didn't have the squad to be able to do that, because I don't think that he did, mm-hmm. and that exacerbated further by the fact that three of his best players have played 60 minutes of rugby combined mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so far this year. Um, Handys played a lot in Europe, but we've seen him in and out of the team. Roy Best hasn't played an awful lot. Um, but relative to the expectations of the squad that's there, they were not performing to those Basically, since November, with the exception of the Harlequins back to backs and Beetle at Rochelle yeah well they, ne- they never put in a, they were not putting in performances that were befitting of the teams of right no, and that, that's that's on everybody that's across yeah. the board that's that's what I'm saying why I have a lot of sympathy with Les, because he did he
2: doesn't have the players to work with to meet those expectations, but at the same time you're right they they never looked like they were going to be competitive and the squad's good enough to at least <laughs> pass off that they are a competitive team, but the the squad were falling so far short, and that's on both them and Les. And uh, Les, I, I'll keep saying it. I like the guy, but he he needed to go, and he him him going isn't going to solve all of Ulster's problems. Yeah. Well, that's nice. that's the bottom line. Like Les was just one part of the overarching issues that lie within Ulster because <laughs> just by getting rid of one guy they're not going to change everything John o, John o' as good a coach as he is isn't going to make this step up to head coach and suddenly Ulster are going to be world beaters there needs to be a lot of work put into this team
0: and getting rid of Les was just part one there's so much more needs to be done well, Before we'll sort of look ahead then as to what happens now um, can, can you talk us through the processes then that uh, have to go through to get to this stage um, I mean as you said it sort of took a, a couple of weeks or ten days or so and um, uh, the RFU and everybody involved I just think it's, it's quite an interesting that all of this has to happen sort of and the, the Irish rugby set up so what what exactly does happen for people out there who maybe aren't as zoo okay with it
1: well I mean you basically have a series of committees um, within Ulster who can make decisions on the professional game within Ulster but Ultimately, all decisions have to be ratified by the IRFU. Les was obviously sent up by the IRFU originally um, to fill the void left by David Humphreys departing. Admittedly, there was a, a year in between him actually arriving and David Humphreys leaving, but I mean, that was the idea. So, Les came up, and this is where maybe in a different way to what Adam's been saying this is where I have sympathy for Les Kiss because he arrived with a stellar CV and is now going to have to build his career back up yeah. and part of that will be on the job but he's done here but part of that is going to be on the, uh, the other factors that went on throughout his tenure because the last three years essentially from things like injuries other factors causing player inavailability and just an awful lot of the other things that have gone on have just been a disaster um, in terms of relationships behind the scenes, things like that. Um, I think, like, if you were to go back three years and the positivity that surrounded Les Kiss's appointment, and especially after the optimism of that initial spell that he did here, as much as the fans turned against him in uh, well, as much as a section of the fans turned against him by the end, I think most people, if you had sat them down three years ago and said this is what's going to happen, you would have been amazed. Like I don't think, I don't think people saw this coming. And like, there's probably a fair amount of captain hindsightism going on out there. This was always doomed to fail. It wasn't like Les came up with a stellar reputation. Joe Schmidt, by all accounts, wanted to keep him with Ireland because he was that happy with the job that he was doing. But Les had ambitions to. Not not even just get a head job, but he wanted the Ulster head job. And that for me is what's, just on a personal level with Les, that's the most disappointing thing because he's now in a position where he has to essentially rebuild his career, rebuild his reputation and try and make it look like essentially Ulster was a poison chalice from the get-go and nobody could have sorted it out, which he may well be able to do. And like, we'll get on to the other factors at play that... Need to be redressed still because we've spoken about it, we've written about it. Getting rid of Les or Les leaving, if you want to be the totally official line here, is not going to suddenly turn this team yeah. into what they're expected to be.
0: Well, over the next couple of weeks, then, before we look long term, um, there are games coming up in what 10 days or so, and um, Kings coming so. What does John o Gibbs as the head coach and even bring Collingham, um the operations manager now, what's going to be their immediate goals over the next few weeks or what What can they do to continue?
1: Well, they need to not uh, only manage to beat the Kings with a late try because we've seen how that ends up <laughs> yeah. for people. So uh, start there.
2: You know what? The worst thing is the next opponents are the Kings because every time a new coach... Takes over, and I know John who's been there for however many months it is now. But any time a new coach turns over, you always get some sort of a reaction. You're always going to have guys thinking right now I'm playing for a spot under the new coach, and there's a very good chance Ulster are going to show up and put about ten tries on them or something because it's the Kings. The Kings are a dire side, yeah, mate. and that that might that's going to completely. Uh, you know, paper over the cracks because <laughs> everyone will suddenly think John is this miraculous uh, saviour who's he's, he's going to turn this team around, as well, we've seen like, before.
1: I think people think that anyway. Like,
2: um. Well, we saw, we saw the reaction whenever he came in. Everyone thought Ulster's pack was about to become the next All Blacks uh, uh, front row or forward pack. Like, it's, it's not going to happen because... What Jono needs to do is he needs to sit down and he needs to just work out how to get this team functioning as a unit again. Because it's all well and good putting in these one-off performances, but you need to back those up. He needs to find some way of working out how to get this consistency in the team. And at the very least, if he's not going to take the job on a long-term basis, and we, we will get to that, I'm not trying to look too far ahead, but... He's at least over the next few weeks got to get this team into the habit of winning. Just get the team able to win, functioning as a cohesive unit, playing something that resembles half-decent rugby. Let, let the results worry about themselves. Right now you've just got to get this team playing well and behind the scenes, Bryn can uh, Bryn can focus on contracts and signings for next season. He can he can do all that, but on, on the pitch, John O has just got to sit down and just, just get this team playing something resembling rugby, basically.
0: John O's been head coach, um, John O's been involved in what's uh, been going on in the pitch. Surely yeah, he's, he's not yeah. going to change anything, is I th- he?
1: Th- I think you had a wee cheeky glint in your right, eye when you asked that question, didn't you?
0: <laughs>
1: this, this, I think, is the key thing, and if we're going to talk about the difference between being a highly successful assistant coach to becoming the head man, the key has to be delegation. You look at like the likes of Mark McCall. Mark McCall is one of the best head men in European rugby at the minute. And... Just, that,
2: a, just to rub it in okay. Yeah, well, I, I was going to
1: say, there, there's the blue pr- blueprint for Les us Kiss. Um, go be an assistant and cast for a while and apparently you'll learn everything you need to know that evidently people thought you didn't know when you were here. Um, he surrounds himself by very good, with very good coaches and allows them to coach. And that's going to be the key. So we're now in a position where John O'Gibbs is going to be allowed to be the head coach. He's going to do what his title says. And that's where you now have what needs to happen in all aspects of Ulster Rugby is people take responsibility for their own stuff. Like, I don't think that they... Rugby is a game that's all linked together, but I don't think in terms of the hierarchy of Ulster Rugby that there should be too much of a Venn diagram going on or anything. Like These things shouldn't overlap. You're the head coach, right? Go be the head coach. You're the attack coach, go be the attack coach. And that's your responsibility. You're in charge of making signings, right? Well, if somebody's bad, then that's on you. You don't want to hear, after it turns out, I'd be bad at, well, it was somebody else signed him, you know? Um not that that's coming from Burnham or anything like that, just to make that clear, but I want to see one person in charge of each element and then it to be identified which element is failing Ulster Rugby and that's when you know how to make a change. There's been too much overlapping of responsibilities. You know, you have... Obviously, everyone should be taking on bits of advice, but there's... It's just, it's been spread too far and it's too difficult to tell who's responsible for which feeling like even you know people are always asking us to ask about the division of labor and it's a question that's been asked but it's a question that's continually fudged so now I want to see us in a position where we know essentially and everybody knows what job they're meant to be doing you know it's a bill Belichick thing do your job and everything else will take care of itself and if other parts of the organization are failing then that will become clear but you have to strip away these layers
2: well, it, it should it should be obvious. I mean, you're right, it, um, but it should be obvious because everybody does have their role, or that they do have a specified role. John is head coach. Dwayne is backstroke attacking coach, which is pretty much one and the same. And Aaron Dundon is the set piece coach.
1: That that's it. Yeah, Just but I mean, by all accounts, Jono wasn't head coach. Well, yes, no, that's,
2: that's that's what I'm saying. By it, all should accounts. Be, it
1: should be obvious
2: what each of them are doing, but it wasn't. But now we have these three in their entrenched roles. Go do that.
1: And should I we? mean, by, by all accounts, Neil Dougal wasn't head coach what? Um, come the end of his tenure. So now it's in a position where the responsibilities had to split up in a way that... Not just everybody knows what the people are doing, but the people themselves know what they're supposed to be doing and are happy with the level of responsibility that they've been given. Yeah. So, do you
0: think the structure that was in place with a director of rugby then was uh, a doom? Not, not
1: so much a doomed system, but something that should not now not be replicated again. Well, I mean, if you go back to when it actually worked, so it worked with David Humphreys and having a head coach underneath him, having good assistant coaches and Neil Doug and Johnny Bell taking care of attack and defence. That made sense and every you know, David Humphreys never had to wear a tracksuit, never had to take training, but was in charge of off the field matters. Mm-hmm. So the director of rugby having that role makes sense. So in essence Bryn Cunningham has replaced David Humphreys. Mm-hmm. So where is the the need to have a head coach and a director of rugby and an operations director because that's three roles who were doing what previously was the responsibility of two people and that's where you have this confusion of who's meant to be doing what or who takes responsibility for what when something goes wrong strictly speaking Ulster were at their most successful when they had two people doing those jobs so where did the need for the third person come and it essentially emanated from the void that was created by David Humphrey's leaving abruptly and Les not being able to come in until after the World Cup. So you needed somebody to fill in those roles in the interim. So Neil Doug became head coach, essentially replacing Mark Anscombe, but was also fronting up the organisation. And when Les arrived, Les was fronting up the organisation, but also having a say in other things that Neil Doak or Mark Anscombe wouldn't have had a say in. So now, essentially, as far as I can see, what you should be doing is Jono Gibbs. I mean, let's just erase the last three years from our memory. Jono Gibbs is Mark Anscombe and Brent Cunningham is David Humphreys and see how you go. So, so you guys maybe would be happy if nobody comes in then for
0: the foreseeable future, else to have everything they need potentially? <laughs> for, the re- for the rest
2: of the season. Mm-hmm no, there shouldn't be anyone else come in, just let the rest of the season play out as it is and let these guys do their job. Beyond this season there's a lot of stuff up in the air, I think it it all depends on what Jono wants to do because there are murmurs that Jono doesn't want the head role and this is only an interim thing for him Mm -hmm. which, which is fair enough, but at that point you have to then bring him back into, say, a forwards role or something like that, as opposed to uh, keeping him as head coach and bringing in a director of rugby and putting Bryn back to operations manager. You have to get that... For for me personally, the director of rugby should be what Bryn was doing all along. Bryn should have just been director of rugby. And be, what Johnny was saying, basically separate the roles of director of rugby and head coach. Director of rugby sorts out all the stuff sort of off the pitch all the logistics whereas the head coach is the one operating the stuff on the pitch. I'm basically repeating what Johnny said Just that you only need two roles, one for on the pitch and one for off the pitch and just keep it that way. The problem now for Ulster is they're coming into a market where you're looking for coaches at the same time as several other clubs. You've got the Ospreys are going to be looking for someone You've got Cardiff are going to be looking for someone. I have no doubt before the end of the season you're going to have a few premiership clubs looking for someone, a few top 14 guys looking for someone as well. They'd like to fill in from France, but I'm sure someone might be uh, uh, convinced to go over there. You've already got Chris Boyd has been taken by Northampton, who would have been a great option for Ulster um, if they'd known sooner. So the they've gotta immediately get on to working out who's gonna replace uh, or who's gonna come in next season or who's who's gonna take that head coach role they've got to already be looking
1: I just think I think it would be a massive mistake to replicate a formula that didn't work so so who would you bring in or what I wouldn't bring in anybody like if you have T, you have two people to do two jobs, the problem in the past has been that you have three people doing two jobs. And people not being, people thinking they should have either more autonomy or more responsibility than they have, and that's been going on for two or three years. It shouldn't have been allowed to reach that point. It shouldn't have ever been allowed to reach that point because that's a recipe for a camp that's not wholly positive. But I think that you need to have somebody to come in and look at defence. Jono obviously has a bit of experience with that himself, but. You'll need to have somebody with a specialisation in defence. Andy Farrell's already been at Ulster training sessions this year. Obviously you're not going to see him until after the Six Nations, but he has been working with Munster earlier in the year. So, to me, the most logical thing to be would see Andy Farrell after the Six Nations if he's not completely spent, come up, do work with Ulster in defence. More work with Ulster, sorry, because he's already been here. Um if we don't see Jared Payne for the rest of the season we all know um, about how clever he is uh, how sharp his rugby mind is in terms of defence I think he could take some of that load until he is in a position to come back whether that be this season and then I think you have to have a look at the structures that have got you into this position in the first place and I know it's something that there's certainly been discussions connected with um Wrapped up in Les's future part of the discussion has been a discussion of the structure. There's going to be a review of those structures between now and whenever a decision is made about whether they should bring somebody in. But just in terms of having a clear hierarchy, everybody knowing who's answerable to who, and nobody thinking that they're skill sets aren't being best utilized would be how I would want to see them move forward. And do you know any sort of initial thoughts from within Ulster as to what sort of structure they they might be looking at going forward? I think if you're talking about, if you're talking about a review of the structure, then there's obviously those within the Ulster branch and within Ulster meetings who think that the current structure wasn't fit for purpose. And I think with how this has ended you can see that that's likely the case. It was always quite a confusing scenario because John O'Gibbs came as head coach which was a promotion in the sense that he was forwards coach at Claremont. Claremont are top 14 champions. Claremont are a massive organisation with aspirations to win the league and the European Cup every year. It's not working out for them this year but uh, to put that to one side. To come to be Ulster's head coach and then Referred to himself as the forwards coach in injuries after he arrived, so you need to strip away that confusion. Mm. And I would say that there is a feeling within, certainly parts of the Ulster organisation, that look at when they were successful and the structure that they had. And I, I know people are going to say successful in what way? Because you know, haven't <laughs> won the trophy. They didn't win the trophies, but. The game now is completely different to the way it was when Ulster last won a trophy. That's how long it's been. So you can't go back to the structure that you had in 2006 when you were, what, 11 years into professionalism as rugby. Like, you can't do that. So the level of success relative to where they are now, I think you need to go back to that structure. And that may involve... um, Bringing in a specialised defence coach, but not somebody or somebody that will work within the system that's there and is able to work within the system that's there with defined responsibilities. And if there is a feeling that the coaching ticket is too inexperienced, with Jono heading up the thing for the first time, Dwayne Peter not long in the job, Aaron Dundon not long in the job, and the new defence coach not long in the job, that you have somebody like what Leinster did with Graham Henry over the summer, what they ended up doing with um, Stierl Lancaster, you know, somebody, an experienced hand coming in to oversee things and impart a bit of experience, impart a bit of wisdom into the best way to take things forward. But again, like we're going back to that's not what's going to fix everything either because the playing squad, as Adam alluded to, the playing squad is not at the level that's going to meet what's the not the base level of expectations are, but we're not that far detached where going into every Ulster season it was seen as silverware or bust. And they don't have the squad for that at the minute because you can't compare them with Leinster squad, Scarlet squad, Glasgow squad or pretty much Munster squad as well. So, you know, you've got four teams in the league that are presently better than you. And it takes a while, especially working within a NIQ system to... Revamp your squad. Like, I don't think this, I don't think Leia's leaving is the end of the clear out.
2: No. Well, what Ulster can't do is they cannot take a risk with whoever they bring in or whatever they do. They have to have someone in who has the experience, especially in building up squads. They They need to have someone who's going to come in, take a look at what they've got, and say, where do we need to be investing? Where do we need to be. Looking at bringing up younger guys, where do we need to be changing things up that they, they can't?
1: Like, w- like when you say that, what is that person's job title? Yeah, well,
2: you, that's are you talking about that's, bringing in a new head. Coach? That's the problem. Is to, or a new the, the executive thing. Executive, you, the thing is, it, it all depends on what Johnna wants to do. Uh, initial thoughts are he doesn't want the main role, so it all comes down to. What what he's gonna do if he wants to keep or if he wants to do the head coach role beyond the end of this season, I don't think there'd be too many people who would argue with that. So he's in in his head coach. They need to bring someone in as forwards, but then it's down to him to address where else do you need to improve, where they need to do that. If he's not going to take that role, if he's going to go back to being the forwards, because you need to bring in an experienced hand at head coach, someone with a lot of experience, and there's not a lot of people ready for that it's, it's like they can't bring in someone like Mark Anscombe who's relatively unknown because back then he had the squad to work with not the same de- or uh, the same struggles with depth but he at least had um, a sensational first team to work with that could sort of paper over those cracks a bit but you need to get someone in who has experience of bringing guys up, being able to introduce guys into
0: the professional environment because Ulster just badly need a squad. We'll be back at Kingspan Stadium next week to pick up plenty more of this chat on what happens post-Les Kiss and where Ulster go now for the rest of this week's episode. Of course... Um, the Six Nations begins on Saturday. Ireland are in France, where Jacob Stockdale will be starting, as will Rory Best and Ian Henderson. So we'll cross over to ourselves yesterday, where, before the Ireland team was announced, we discussed the weekend's game. Nice to see the uh, Jacob Stockdale
2: appreciation <laughs> podcast making a return. <laughs> um, well, he, he won two awards at the He Bet-Mask won two autograph. awards
0: at, at our sports night, awards. Should mention.
2: Um, fully deserved as well for the fantastic year he had last year, but... This this is the first time that he could really make a name for himself on the world stage because the November tests, he played fantastically well. But With the November tests, you can always say uh, Springboks are a team on the decline, Argentina aren't what they were. Um, the Six Nations, you're facing five other teams who are just as fired up for these games, as you are, they will not give him any quarter. And if he can produce the form he's produced for Ulster, if he can keep going from where he was previously, there's no reason why he can't step up and he could really solidify himself in that Ireland team. I think he's already there, but you know, five great performances would just absolutely nail down that eleven jersey. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk over whether it'll be him or Keith Earls. Starting on the wing, I I don't think there's a question about it. And as I, as I said, if he puts in five great performances, this could be where he fully entrenches himself in that
1: jersey. Well, I don't think it's or it shouldn't be a case of ours or Stockdale. I think it should be ours and Stockdale mm-hmm. because Keith Earls is in flying form. But it's funny when you sort of think about the trajectory of Stockdale and. Uh, just how quickly you can lose that tag of you know the bright the bright young thing in Irish rugby because it's sort of like you know kids getting new toys at Christmas where all of a sudden it's now everyone's talking about Jordan Larmour and whether Stockdale can hold off the charge to keep him out of the team because for me I see it as Rob Kearney in the 15 jersey nailed on and Keith Earls has been in flying form as we say so he should be in as well so you're looking at Stockdale Larmour and McFadden really contesting for that other wing spot. I think it will be Stockdale I think it should be Stockdale but for me just the the battle between the two of them over the course of the championship because Larmour will get a chance presumably maybe off the bench against Italy or something like that so we are going to see the two of them play and it's going to be an interesting competition between the two of them um, to see who ends the championship um, obviously Stockdale had the sort of first speed bump if you like against Leinster a few weeks ago where he um, had probably his worst performance of the season possibly like one of the more negative performances that he's had in an Ulster jersey at all um, even from when he first came in but he bounced back well from that against La Rochelle obviously he picked up the injury very early against Wasps so we didn't get to see him continue that on but when you talk about twenty-one-year-olds in the Six Nations, because I was it just sort of skimming through the record book last night, um, in terms of try scores at that age in the Six Nations, you've got Brian O'Driscoll, Shane Horgan, Tommy Woe, Andrew Trimble, and Robbie Henshaw. So you're in pretty high company there if you can make an impact in this in this championship as a twenty-one-year-old. So. For him, as you say, it will be the next step because you're you're building on the summer tour, you're building on the November internationals, and then this is another step up for him. So it's going to be one of the more fascinating elements um, from an Ulster perspective over the next couple of weeks to see how he gets on with it. Just just on the perspective of Jordan Larmour, I mean,
2: how how exciting would it be to see him and Stockdale and the team together? You know, that's that's your future. or two thirds of your future back three right there and you threw throw in one of our personally I'd put Larmer ahead of Carney but you know wh- whoever's going to play whenever you get stocked and Larmer on the pitch together that's going to be a really exciting uh two thirds of that
1: back three well I mean that's that's certainly the future but I don't think at this stage we're going to see a 21 year old and a 20 year old no 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 we're not, we're not reed, we're not sorry so <laughs> R- R- rob carney's going to play yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. I think the people forget about Rob Kearney is I think because he's now had a ten year international career, essentially like people forget that he's only thirty one, like um there's miles in those legs yet. So it, for the next couple of years and up to the World Cup, because Rob Carney make the World Cup, so it's gonna be an interesting interesting to see how Joe Schmidt plays that because for all he's achieved with Ireland we do we still do see him as a relatively conservative selector. That's changed a wee bit post twenty fifteen and post the World Cup. Uh, against Argentina, and he's really trying to stretch that depth of the squad out but um, in terms of this championship I think it's Keith Erd it's it's Rob Carney and we're going to see Stockdale in pole position for that and it'll just be it'll be a big element of this championship from an Irish perspective and from an Ulster perspective how he goes and whether he can hold off this charge of Jordan Armour and as well Fergus McFadden who is obviously one of Joe Schmidt's tried and trusted players well,
0: thinking about Saturday's game in particular then um, at in France at the stadium that Adam does a, a great uh, French accent and saying go for it Adam go no on. I will not be doing that uh, it's not just I for know. us alright well um, at the Stade de France as, as Adam says <laughs> um, tough start for Ireland or what do we think?
1: it's a really tricky start because we're obviously of the age where we've just grown up seeing Ireland lose this fixture you know you think of 2000 and Brian O'Driscoll's hat trick which was 18 years ago now and Ireland have won this fixture once since with the uh, championship clinching uh, victory in 2014 but obviously this is not the France team of old and it's not even the France team of last year or two years ago because again we've seen massive changes in the coaching panel, we've got Jack Brunel in there replacing Guy Noves and again it's a similar sort of idea of is it almost past his time to be given the job but the contrast to that that we're going to see this weekend from all the reports are that we're going to see a very young French team, one that hasn't had any time to train together, hasn't had time to gel and I think France, France especially in this championship and Wales to a certain extent because of all the injuries that they have are a team that's good to play at the start because there's been no chance to build combinations. You know, we're going to see uh, Jalabert, uh, 19, 20 year olds, playing it out half. Obviously, that's a, going to be a big target for for Ireland, but just throughout the squad, it's a very young team. An awful lot of the guys that we would be used to seeing aren't going to be there. You know There's no pickle there's no Basteroid. Um So France, as much as we always throw out these clichés that they're a conundrum they're an enigma we don't know which one's going to turn up that's especially true now and you're looking at you know Ireland are six point favourites for this game going to Paris which is unheard of but I think it's justified and I think we'll see where we didn't see it last year because I mean Ireland's you know Grand Slam and Triple Crown hopes were up in smoke after 25 minutes last year so this is where we need to see a strong start and lay down a marker and I think it's a great opportunity for them to do.
0: Is that, is that an interesting sort of aspect or Ireland's, Ireland's build-up of this game, in that they need to play the France team that's in front of them, rather than playing what has traditionally been a difficult fixture, and the mentality that that might um, sort of have on, on the build-up? That is exactly what they have to do. They have
2: to get rid of that mentality of France is a tough place to go, because... I love France for the same reason I hate Ulster right now. They're so wonderfully inconsistent <laughs> in that you have absolutely no idea what you're going to get, and that's just, that's just how France have been for so many years. For all we know, they're going to come out and they're going to play like world beaters. Uh, I don't expect it to happen, but I could very easily see it happening because it's France. Ireland, Ireland, if they let the occasion get to them, that's when it becomes tough, because the Stade de France is a very tough, it's a tough intimidating atmosphere, and French crowds love to do that, even, you know, you, you see it in the club games, the likes of Clermont and the likes of uh, La Rochelle and Toulon, you know, they they love to make their fortresses, and then you bring them all together in the Stade de France, and it becomes, you know, just one big cacophony, of noise. That's exactly the
1: point, because the crowd, especially in France, works both ways. If France make a good start and these young guys look like they're the future of French rugby, the crowd are going to get on that and then they're off, they're away. But if things don't go well and the crowd gets nervy, there can, be a real, there can be a real sort of tension in the Stade de France if things aren't going well. And the flip side of that is if they are and Les Marseillais starts up every 78,000 in the crowd seems to have a tiny french flag that they're waving and it can be a really strange place to play your rugby when france are on song so again it's just it's about laying down that marker making a quick start making a big hit get your back row right up in the face of an untested halfback pairing because you know morgan power is not there cami lopez isn't there this is a french team that in terms of being intimidated by the occasion it's more likely to fall on the M than it is Ireland because Ireland have as much as the squad is getting younger, I think I think twenty six was the average age of the squad, I believe. But there's an awful lot of seasoned campaigners in that team. You know, this isn't the Ireland that went to France two years ago when it was again not a vintage France team, but you know, you look at the team from that day and Ireland made a really good start but really basically got done in by their scrum. Um Mike Ross wasn't there, um, going further back John Hayes wasn't there, and it was a new year for sort of Ireland in the tight head, the real cornerstone of the scrum, we had Nathan White started that day and Teg Furlong was only on the bench, uh, came on and it was when things started to unravel, whereas now Furlong's one of the premier tight heads in World Rugby. So it's a very different, it's a very different Ireland team and it's one that shouldn't be overawed by the occasion. Well, as
0: Ulster enjoyed a weekend off last weekend, the club teams didn't. They were in action. And Adam has a roundup of how they all got on. Yep, we start in the Division 1B. Balamina
2: with the result of the weekend. They defeated table topping Shannon 10 5. Luke Marshall, uh, on his return from injury, scoring a try there for the Braidmen with a great win. Ban Hinch that allowed them to close the gap with a 23-7 win over UCC. Johnny was there so he'll be talking about that in a minute. Um, Banbridge also picked up a win at home to Old Wesley winning 18-12. That means Hinch still second on 42 points but they're now only one point behind Shannon. Banbridge third on 39. Ballymena State eighth on 21. In Division 2A, Malone stayed top with a 14-12 win over Greystones. Uh, And in the Ulster Derby this weekend, Queen's University uh, were beaten 10-3 at home by City of Armagh, who are on a bit of good form at the moment. Uh, That keeps Malone first on 50 points. City of Armagh are fourth on 31. Queen's are sixth on 20. (laughs) <laughs> Queens are 6th on 26. sorry. Uh, in Division 2B, City of Derry's scorelines continue to look like cricket scores. They were defeated 73-12 by MU Barnhall. Uh, Belfast Harlequins lost away to Old Crescent 33-15. Rainey suffered a shock defeat away to Scarries by 20 points to 13. But Dungannon were winners on the road at Wanderers 24-17. Rainey stay second on 48th, but they're now seven points behind Old Crescent. Dingannon on are sixth on 32, and Quinns and City of Derry are ninth and tenth. And in Division 2C, Bective Rangers were soundly beaten by Bangor. 16-0, good win for Bangor. Uh, and Oma, unfortunately, were defeated 10-6 by Toman at home. So Bangor are now up to fourth on 32 points. Oma dropped to sixth on 29 points.
0: Johnny, um, good win for Ballina then on Saturday, and I'm sure those spirits were lifted even more when they heard the the Shannon result coming through.
1: Yeah, well that's exactly it because uh, it was game played in awful conditions. Like Ballincarron Park is exposed at the best of times, but the wind was the wind was incredible. And you know, just talking to a few people before the game, it was again the thought out that old cliche. You expected a game of two halves because Ballina Hinch were playing into the wind in in that first half when they turned around seven 0 down, but just a good commanding uh, commanding performance in the second half um, where they really pulled away and there will almost be an element of disappointment there because they had an opportunity to kick on and they left a few tries out there really and um, they could have made it an even uh, an even bigger win maybe with a bonus point but as you say that but that Balamina Shannon result um, as good a result for Balna as it is for uh, Balamina because they're now they've really closed that gap and The two teams, Hinch and Shannon, have played each other twice this year. so uh, They don't have another fixture against each other. So that's going to be the scenario you have every week where you get your result out of the way and then you're checking the opposition's result because I think it's going to be a real sort of battle for the rest of the season between them two. A few Ulster players (laughs) weren't released for the game, uh, Pete Brown and Pete Nelson. Um, It's going to be interesting to see how the... uh, collapse of the Stephen Donald deal affects Balmahinch because there's every chance now that we're going to see McPhillips and Nelson in the Ulster team every week for the rest of the season so that'll leave a bit of a hole for them at 10 um, from what they've had over the first half of the season so that's another thing maybe to look out for but yep, um, strong win, managed the conditions well and did what they had to do really.
0: Well, let's not forget about Bambridge standing in that top-of-the-table battle of oh, Jonathan. Um, they're only the four points off the top, I think, and um, we could really uh, close that even further whenever they host Shannon at the weekend. Surely Shannon couldn't lose there, two games to Ulster teams in two weeks, could they? There's every
2: chance that we could have an Ulster 1-2 in Division 1-B before the end of the weekend because, uh, as you said, Bambridge hosts Shannon this Saturday, which is where I'll be headed. And our um, game of the week, we And say. it is our game of the week, Yes if we could have an Ulster 1-2 in 1B heading into sort of this this is a very pivotal part of the season because you are coming into uh, an international period where teams might be uh, without some of their provincial players so for them for them to be leading the way coming into this stage could be vital which is why a Banbridge win could really blow this
0: wide open well prediction time then obviously I'm going to go for Bambridge so if one of the other two will oblige then Bambridge will be our, our team for this week uh, but go for it I'll go Bambridge
1: ah there we go we don't need you Jonathan but well. for, for <laughs> interests of um, interest that's always been your attitude whether it's predictions or not I'm just <laughs> not, not really required here anymore no, um, yeah Bambridge ah, good man clean sweep um, well, one a day,
0: as Adam mentioned, Saturday will be for Daniel Super, a busy boy. Um, his inst team begin their quest for a fourth Schools Cup title uh, in a row on Saturday morning when they travel to his old team, Ballyclare. Is that Ballyclare, isn't
2: it? No, it's Oh,
0: when it's. they host his old team, <laughs> Ballyclare. Uh, so, well, um, an inst win expected, really, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Look, at at schools level, it is very much anyone can beat anyone. Um... And we've seen that over the years with a few fantastic runs to the final from teams like uh, BRA and uh, teams like that. And I I know they had a great team that year. But, you know, so there are years where some schools can really uh, come out of nowhere and get there. But it's three-time winners in a row. I can just about get that out there. Um, And by all accounts, they're having another great year. They've lost a lot of that team from last year, which is the main thing. There's a lot of experience gone from that side, um, and they're not having to start completely fresh, but they're certainly having to change a lot in in terms of personnel. So it'll be very interesting to see how they adapt, how that sort of lack of not complete lack of experience but just that loss of experience will impact them and for the first time in a while they're sort of starting on a slightly more even keel
0: than where they've been the last couple of years um, yeah, what a job Daniel Super's doing there, and at Bambridge, uh, just an excuse to mention Bambridge again, really. Um, but, uh, yes, well that's really us for this week, uh, we'll be back next week to look back on the fourth round of the Schools Cup and Ireland's game in France, who knows where we'll be on our tour of Belfast, it's all very exciting. <laughs> well, hopefully um, we'll be back like at Kingsbound next week. <laughs> oh yeah, well that's less exciting, but anyway, you, n- you never know where we might take ourselves. Building up to the big game against the Kings. Everybody's looking forward to that, let's just focus on Ireland for now, it's, uh, heart, heart it's happier. Heart <laughs> but uh, with me I've been Adam McHenry cheers guys uh, Jonathan Bradley thank you very much uh, me Gareth Hanna thanks for listening